Welcome to Urban Puritano. On today's episode, we have a special guest, a chilled-out conversation with Pastor Brandon of Christ the King Reformed Baptist Church. Gird your loins and stay tuned. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. Pastor Brandon, welcome to Urban Puritano. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining me and the audience. I wanted to tell a interesting tidbit of information uh, beforehand. It's a very uh, circuitous uh, type of story where um, many people don't know, but I was involved in church planting many years ago. Many, many years ago it was my heart. Still is my heart to um, have as many reformed churches in the Chicago area Amen. as possible. Amen. And uh, I was involved in a Spanish-speaking church plant. This was over 20 years ago. And by God's providence, it didn't happen. Hmm. And um, after that, uh, some personal uh, struggles and even, you know, backsliding. Uh, since then, uh, I've been front sliding. So, um I, I remember uh, being in touch with somebody from Westminster West who came back to Chicago. He was from Chicago and was involved in a church plant. Some of the details of that are found in episode 10 or episode X, uh, where Pastor Nathan and I talk about that. Um, but that was a Presbyterian church plant. Uh -huh. And uh, also by God's providence, it didn't uh, pan out. And... Therein, therein, you know, was the ending of my efforts or my involvement with church planting. So, um, as you know, I uh, journeyed, you know, in in my walk with the Lord and um, grew and continued to front slide. Um, <laughs> I uh, moved and I came across First Baptist, and then. It was in the midst of a change. Mm -hmm. It evolved, it changed into Christ the King, Reformed Baptist Church, mm -hmm. in the providence of God. Yeah. Without having to lift a finger, say a word, make a call, you know, put on a meeting, or do anything. And this is just in God's providence. Amen. And I came across the church, I came across you, mm -hmm. and I thank you very much for everything that you've done and um, you have put your neck out there for not only for me, for other people that 
have um, requested, for example, uh, religious exemption letters mm-hmm. during these yep. last two years for their employers. Mm-hmm. So you've been shoulder to shoulder with uh, the people mm-hmm. in support of their freedom mm-hmm. and uh, not being coerced to Amen. become a patient against their will. (laughs) And so uh, these are the times that we're living in. And I just wanted to give that short, brief story to introduce you, Pastor Brandon. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Well, praise God for that. I I definitely agree with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, when he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think that's something that every every true Christian um, gets a sense of that, that all all glory be to God, uh, sincerely. Um, He is good and faithful, and uh, so encouraged to hear that. What a blessing. Um, yeah, so by the grace of God, I, I grew up in a home where I heard the gospel at a young age. My parents gave me the gospel, and when I was five years old, I was convicted of my sins and repented and trusted in Christ and baptized when I was 13. I grew up in the free church tradition, so my mom's uh, dad uh, was a, a pastor in the free church down in Florida and uh, in Iowa and then in Tennessee for a short time before he went to be with the Lord. But uh, deep roots in the Free Church. Mm-hmm. So you think of Trinity, uh, Evangelical Divinity School. You think of the mm-hmm. Evangelical Free Church of America. That's kind of what the tradition was that I that I hailed from. And uh, yeah, by God's grace, uh, I would say during my growing up years, it was a little more clunky in the sense that I think I was genuinely a Christian, but there was some sanctification going on. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit ashamed of the gospel, maybe. Um, I wanted to just kind of fit in. I wasn't really a, a leader. I just followed friends around in, in middle school, high school, this kind of a thing. And, you know, wasn't like the worst kid involved with sports, but went to a Christian college in Upland, Indiana. And by God's grace, was on a floor with a bunch of different guys who were older than me on the whole. And uh, that's where some of them just challenged me. And mm-hmm. I like to say this, you know, the Bible talks about speak the truth in love. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of truth spoken. I don't know how much love was there, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, it was great that they challenged me to go to church, go to chapel take my faith more seriously, to read the Bible more seriously. And that really did rattle me. It was almost like you you have the head knowledge, but do you actually believe it? Mm. And uh, challenging my inconsistency, my own hypocrisy was something that I praise God for. I'll never forget one guy in particular really challenged me. He just said, Brandon, what I'm about to share with you, I was a freshman, he was a junior. What I'm about to share with you, if I didn't share this with you, I would actually hate you. I would actually not love you. But because I do, I'm going to share this with you. And then he just laid into me about how I had been living and acting and treating the other guys and, and so on. And I praise God for that. And the moment my pride just you know rose up, I wanted to justify myself. What a self-righteous. Who does he think he is? But genuinely, I look back at that and I praise God for his hand in um, that man's voice, that man's mm-hmm. word. And um, his name is Brent Freeman. He's in... Uh, Indiana now. Um, mm. Haven't talked, haven't stayed in touch with him uh, in a while, but I praise God for him, mm. honestly. I don't know if he'll remember that, but it was meaningful for me, and I praise God for that. Um, sincerely, it was, a, it was a key moment. Started reading Romans more, Ephesians more, going to church more regularly, being involved in campus ministry, and that's really kind of one of these. I heard, um, I can't remember which pastor it was, maybe Dave Harvey or someone say something like, God throws you in the fast lane of sanctification, right? Mm. And that's kind of what he did. He threw me in the fast lane of sanctification and jetted me up in those college years, and um, some of my peers were not taking their faith as seriously, but others were. And I praise God for a number that were. And that was really a launching point for being involved in more campus ministry and taking my faith more seriously. And, um, yeah, uh, it was it was a huge, huge blessing to be there. And I'm sure there's other ministry things I can get into afterwards, but that's a little bit about 
Um, God's kindness. Praise God for godly homes, godly parents. You know, weren't perfect, but were very faithful to discipline mm-hmm. me, point me to Christ. I can still remember my father sitting us down and saying he was sorry for having an outburst of anger or, or doing these sorts of things that now when I'm older, I realize that was not the norm <laughs> when he was talking about that and saying, I'm sorry, I need God's grace. I need his forgiveness in Christ. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't right that I did that. And he loved my mom very faithfully, very well, still does. I praise God for that. And it's a blessing, an undeserved blessing, mm-hmm. obviously on top of uh, uh, of salvation next to salvation. But I do think that praise be to God that after that salvation in Christ and his His mercy there, being in a godly home was just instrumental and so helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, having that truth spoken to me in love and pointing me to the gospel, taking me to church faithfully, even against my will sometimes, right? But praise God for how he uses the body and uh, for his kindness to, to continually give us that mm-hmm. message. I tell people that I was so stubborn in my heart that I need to hear the gospel not once, not twice, but mm-hmm. tens of thousands of times for it to like penetrate and, mm-hmm. and break down that. But God is good. He's faithful and and I just say, all glory be to him, because that was a turning point and one that I rejoice in, even as I think back now, 15 years ago, and I think back on that. Wonderful. Praise God. It sounds like the hand of the Lord and his working was very present in your family, in your upbringing, mm-hmm. in your youth. You probably uh, repented <laughs> at a young age yes. over and over again yep. for different things, right. like a lot of us do. <laughs> That's right. And, um, but you felt... Perhaps uh, a call to the ministry. That's why you went to a, is it a Christian college? Yeah, it's interesting how I got there, actually. I, I went to Taylor University in Indiana, small liberal arts. Um, they, I think the phrase is they use interdenominational school. So it's kind of like made up of, it's not underneath a denomination mm. or associated with a particular tradition, but there's a lot of evangelicals that mm. um, go there. I'm pretty sure it has Methodist roots in its history. But I went there because um, I knew some guys in the youth group at the church that I attended mm. who had gone there. And so I went and checked it out. Trinity was a school I looked at, but it was a little closer. So I went to Taylor, checked it out, um, applied for it. Pretty sure I got waitlisted. I didn't have great grades in school. So I got waitlisted, but then by God's grace, did get in, had an interview there. And um, it was a blessing. I mean, I didn't expect it to be the kind of blessing that it was going to be. I just wanted to go and have fun. At first, a lot of my friends were going to state schools. Mm. So I was looking at some of those schools. Did a number of college visits with them, and uh, excuse me, when I found out that they were going to these other schools, and I was kind of a spy. Everyone's declaring where they're going to go. My my parents, by God's grace, kind of put their foot down and said, "We're only going to pay for you to go to a a Christian school. We're only going to direct you. We want to support you in this way, mm. and not that way." And um, I think that was just God's kindness and their wisdom, because I think I would have got caught up in a lot of worldly things, even worse than it was already going on. Um, and so I praise God for that because for me, I know that there are many who go and thrive in those schools, get involved in local churches, campus ministries. Praise God for that. Um, for me, I think my faith was too mature. I think it was still a little bit mm-hmm. more unstable. And so I praise God for his kind providence and having me go there and just all the details of that. Um, so I actually studied political science and history there. Um, I entertained ministry somewhat. I did serve with... Um, uh, the residence life staff there for three years. So I was a personnel assistant. Every other college calls them the resident assistant RA, but we never got the memo that every other college in America calls it RA. We call it PA, personnel assistant, not personal personnel like staff, you know. So we would do things like different trips for the guys, meet with the sister wing and do some activities with them, you know, fun activities, stuff like that. We did some educational activities as well and some ministry stuff, led prayer meetings, but that was um, in college. Then when I graduated, I had some connections to Trinity because in the summers between my college experience, I would actually work at Trinity on the grounds crew. So I would work there, 
had some connections there from the free church I grew up in. And then my senior year, uh, Tom Lenz, who's actually now with the Lord, but Tom Lenz was the ground supervisor at Trinity. And he said to me, hey, Brandon, how would you like to come and work here at Trinity? I know you don't know what you're doing next when you graduate from Taylor, but my grounds foreman is going to leave and I need someone to fill that spot. You've done this work. You know how to do it. And you can also take classes for free if you're looking at grad school or whatever else. So in God's, again, kind providence, I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do. I kind of a little bit entertained doing the LSAT, you know, sitting for that uh, entrance into law school, but not nothing really seriously in that regard. And then it just worked out really well. I was like, you know what? This is a great next step. It's a job. It was 2009. So it was like the market was just down. It was like the worst market in 25 years or something like that in terms of the job market. And I was like, you know, I can be close to family. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine was moving up to his parents' lake house in um, in uh, Gurney, some gauges lake there. So I was like, all right, this will be great. I'll go up there, live with him, pay like dirt cheap rent, and then get to go to Trinity, have an income, maybe take a class or something like that mm-hmm. in history, the church history. And you could also do some other things. So that worked out great. That's how I kind of got my foot in the door at Trinity and started entertaining at least a little bit more uh, ministry in the future. So, Very interesting. Uh, I heard political science in there. So That's I'll probably right. <laughs> ask you, ask your take on Christian nationalism. Oh, yeah. There you go. You need, that's a big one. I just talked to some pastor brothers about that this morning. <laughs> yeah, it's a boogeyman. It is. Um, amongst many other boogeymen. So <laughs> uh, very interesting. Uh, at what point uh, did you steer in the direction of ministry of the word, pastoral ministry? So here's what's interesting. I think I was a little bit hesitant to go into ministry in college even. Because the youth pastor who I uh, loved and looked up to, he had left our church, not on bad terms, but he had left our church to go to another occupation. He actually left his uh, wife. And uh, that really rattled me. It really did. It disoriented me. And I just kept thinking, I never want to be that for someone. I never want to be that. And uh, I think maybe I would have entertained ministry a little sooner um, had that not been the case. But that really jarred me. That really stuck with me. And I think... You know, growing up, we served with children's ministries, my family, these kinds of things. We did stuff with Vacation Bible School, and we're very involved in the life of the church. But I think that in college, um, I changed major a couple times. Like, I maybe looked at business first. I don't know if I actually declared that. I was secondary uh, education for history at one point. But then I landed on political science and and had already taken a number of history courses as well. But... um, for me, it was one of these things where I was young, I was declaring a major, and I was trying to declare a major that I was interested in. So actually, the first intro to political science class I took at Taylor, I did horribly in it, and it was like so embarrassing. I got like some C-plus or something. It was the worst grade I think I ever got in college. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? This is outrageous. But then I ended up declaring that major, and then I don't think I got anything less than an A for the rest of the time I was there. Again, I'm not saying that to brag, just because I was like, this is something that I enjoyed. I was studying. I was learning. But in that first intro to political science, it was like, okay, this is my major. This is awful. I need to change. But God was gracious, got me through it. And, um, you know, it was something where I was interested in the subject. I didn't know what I wanted to do afterwards. It was like, I want to actually be some interested in something if I'm going to read all about this stuff for four years. Um, so I'm, I'm more declared because everyone else was like, you need to declare, you need to declare. Um, I didn't know necessarily where the end game was for that. A lot of my peers went to law school. Um, some have gone on and done like doctorates in political science, this kind of thing. But um, for me, God just kind of directed me away from that. And I think I read somewhere it's like, what is it, 80% of people who um, graduate with a degree go on and do something else in a different mm-hmm. field. So 
I apparently I'm the majority, I guess. But yeah, it was it was a blessing though. The Lord led me to even almost be driven. Even at Taylor University, it was interesting at the time. The department was not run by you'd think like oh some conservatives, right? Mm. It was not. There were liberals there who like mm. supported you know President Obama mm. <laughs> in the humanities department and stuff. And so it was very liberal. Actually, it was very liberal in the political science department in the mm. in the um, humanities department at Taylor. Very much so. So I felt isolated, and I started then reading more, researching more on my own, got into Thomas Sowell, got into some Walter Williams, and finding some other scholars who I was not being I was not being encouraged to read there, but just who had some responses to some of the regular textbooks and mm-hmm. arguments that were given uh, there. So I watched a shift where a number of these conservative-minded you know students would come in, and then they kind of gradually drifted towards the liberal professor's views oh, wow. on a number of things, but. Uh, for me, I had maybe flirted with that a little bit in my earlier years, but then I kind of just continued to read more on my own mm-hmm. and get more into the, um, you know, Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell, some of them, and then even pushing it further into some Christian thinkers, John Calvin, whoever else, on those mm-hmm. matters of the state of relationship to society, culture, and and so on. Even economics, we didn't really have too much of an economics focus, but started reading a lot more economics, mm-hmm. and uh, by a number of Christian economists, went up to the Acton University in. Um, through the Acton Institute in Michigan, went there, I think, two or three years, uh, which was a blessing, you know, mm. and everything. So that was great to be able to actually run into, like, Dr. Jay Richards. Um, he's actually a Roman Catholic guy, but a conservative guy, written a lot of great stuff up there. Jay Bruce is a philosophy uh, professor. I remember meeting him up there, and he was having all these arguments back and forth about the good, you know, Walmart, is it good or bad, and whatever mm. else. So it was very interesting to interact with all these scholars and guys who were further along. Hunter Baker at Union University met him as well. And it was just neat. It was neat to interact with these guys, and and they were thoughtful. They were scholars. They were kind of, you know, pioneers. They they would not call themselves pioneers, but for me, they were pioneering in the sense that I I hadn't met a Christian scholar Mm. who was also conservative, right? And so I'm around these guys who were actually Christian, scholarly, conservative, sharp, Mm. and it was a blessing. It was great to be able to be in that environment. And that kind of supplemental stuff, really, that was in addition to my time at college was what kept me afloat. Um, I think, and then didn't lead me down this route of the kind of leftward drift a lot of these peers underwent um, in my in my undergrad days, and to this day, a number of them sadly still embrace. So, right. I'm curious, as you were in the middle of your education, yeah, as you were being exposed to these things, these academic uh, studies. Hello. This is Urban Puritano. I wanted to take a moment to speak with you about Pilgrim Digital. Pilgrim Digital helps small businesses, solopreneurs, startups, nonprofits, churches, parachurch organizations, and even individuals design the visuals that they need to stand out. Take Urban Puritano. It started off as a podcast in the pandemic era. And it has blossomed into a podcast, a website, a blog, a hub, basically, for Urban Puritano, yours truly. Web design, graphic design, dynamic integration, even e-commerce, search engine optimization, social media consulting. The possibilities are endless. The bottom line is you shouldn't delay. Contact pilgrimdigital.co. Don't delay. Remember... Pilgrim Digital helps you stop dreaming and start creating.
where were you theologically? What That's was the question. trajectory at that time as you were in college? In so, grew up in a conservative home. Um, the FCA is, was generally conservative, um, the Evangelical Free Church of America. Um, but I think that what was interesting is I think everyone comes to Taylor, a lot of students come to Taylor or to any Christian school, and they sense when they're going to these academic classes, well, I don't want to just believe everything that my parents believe, or I don't want to just, surely they can't be right about everything or this kind of a thing. But what I did was I did have this little season of theologically starting to embrace, like I would never call myself Calvinist or Reformed back then. I was Arminian. I almost, you know, when I first heard of Calvinism um, uh, by, at the time, philosophy professor James Spiegel, he was talking about this in a seminar he did. It came up. I was like, oh, this determinism. It sounds like this, you know, everything's determined and our free choices don't matter. Our free will doesn't matter. It's trounced out this kind of thing. It sounded ridiculous to me. You know what I mean? So I would have called myself Arminian. I would have called myself, you know, not not complementarian, more like egalitarian. Like, of course, women can preach. Of course, women can be elders. This kind of a, that's exclusionary. These kinds of things. What about equality? Um, and I think that's just by default. It was like I didn't want to do what I grew up with. I didn't grow up in a in a in a, in a deeply reformed tradition in the sense that they weren't mm-hmm. like explicitly we're reformed. You know, the free church takes a different posture. They say in essentials unity and non essentials liberty and all things mm-hmm. charity. There's a lot of you know, people quote this guy or that guy and say, who said it. But that's kind of mantra there that they love. On secondary matters that aren't mm-hmm. related to salvation, the free church embraces that. So it's a big tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was kind of my posture. I'm like, we're all Christians. Let's just all get along these kinds of things. And at Taylor, the ones who have the most forceful conviction or the most forceful and deep convictions were actually surprisingly not the more uh, theologically conservative. They were more theologically liberal probably. So mm-hmm. they had this posture because the professors had that and so they were kind of pushing this stuff and i think even at a christian school today christian university college there's a bent towards um which is a historically new position but egalitarianism Mm -hmm. you know there's a bent towards more uh, liberal positions on a number of different issues and so i would say theologically i would describe myself as very different then than i do today even when it comes to covenantal theology dispensationalism Mm -hmm. i was probably more in the dispensational camp um uh, kind of pre-mill dispensational camp um, by default, uh, mm. almost. Well, that seems right, you know, this kind of a thing. So I found myself in a very different place theologically. I started reading, like I said, Romans and Ephesians a lot more. That started to gradually change me at, uh, at in college. And I started to be challenged by, okay, what do I really believe about these things? And then I would say probably my junior and senior year, I came to more settled conviction of, okay, I'm not egalitarian, I'm mm. not Arminian. But it wasn't like this, I'm out and outspoken, these kinds of things, and I would go necessarily serve a church as a pastor. It was more, these are probably my beliefs. Maybe I'll find a church that lines up with that. Um, and I didn't have this deep need conviction. I heard a pastor or a professor once describe himself as a weak need complementarian. Mm. Um, I think John Woodbridge said that. I'm a weak need complementarian. I probably would describe myself like that back, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago or so. Um, it's changed since, since then. Um, because I, I would just say I keep on reading God's word. I keep on you know reading more theology and church history, and it, it, it has solidified more to a settled conviction um, than than it was back then. But the Lord was very gracious in hammering out and ironing out some of that. Um, what do I believe? Why do I believe it theologically? So even about the inerrancy of Scripture, there was debates back then when I was in college about the inerrancy of Scripture. It's fascinating to think about the debates that were happening that I didn't even realize were happening, but terminology that had come out of Fuller Theological Seminary about infallibility versus inerrancy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, some of those debates trickled down, and we had them on our college campus. So mm-hmm. at Taylor University, we're having debates about inerrancy and fallibility. Now, we didn't know the history of the mm-hmm. debate. We didn't know the big names and the big figures, but we are just having debates about the nature of Scripture. Is it um, inerrant? Is it without error in the original manuscripts? Is it infallible, which actually sounded like a more strong word in mm-hmm. some ways, but it's less strong in, in light of the fuller school when it comes to matters of doctrine and faith or, or doctrine and um, and living versus, you know, all these other matters, science, history, whatever else. So mm-hmm. we were having those discussions and debates. Maybe they weren't as informed, but they were definitely debates and live mm-hmm. debates happening there, certainly amongst the faculty, I'm sure, but also um, among students who are just trying to piece together what they believed. And I would say I was less settled there than I am today or than I am in the last few years. So I praise God for that. For I grew up in a church where they affirmed inerrancy, but certainly I would have waffled on that more in college, I think, just based upon the weight of arguments that were coming. So, Very interesting. Very interesting. What was your first ministry experience then uh, yeah. after college and you know in a church? Yeah, so it's, that's a good question. So I, I was working on the grounds for Trinity, and it's kind of a hilarious story. There was a, there was a guy who worked at Trinity in, I think, the financial aid office, um, and, uh, or in the accounting office at Trinity. And I'm pretty sure, and I'm trying to be too graphic here, but I'm pretty sure I was scooping goose poop with a shovel off of the sidewalk <laughs> under the grass. And he came up to me and he said something like, did you ever think your Taylor University education would get you here? <laughs> or something, you know, just trying to make... We were really close. It was one of these. He was my youth leader, one of my youth leaders growing up. And then he shared with me an opportunity. He said that there's an opportunity in the church you grew up in. Now, at the time I was worshiping in a different church, but there's an opportunity in the church you grew up in. Um, and he said, um, for, for an interim youth pastor, would you want to come mm-hmm. and, and apply for that? Maybe, maybe you should do it. And so I was like, well, I was currently serving on the uh, residence life staff at Trinity and one of the uh, male, male dorms. I was an mm-hmm. assistant resident director. I think it was my second year doing that. And I was also uh, working on the grounds crew. So I had a lot of time on my hands. I'm um, pretty sure my wife and I at the time were not married. Um, so I was a single guy, lots of times working all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Working all the time. So had a part-time job, full-time job. And I thought about it. And the same thing that I mentioned earlier, the youth pastor kind of thing came up. Um, but I talked over my parents, sought other wise counsel, and I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply for this. So I applied for it, and they had recently had a new senior pastor come uh, over there, and he was a young guy as well, a little older than me. But, um, yeah, it worked out, again, in, in God's kind providence, worked out really well where uh, they did hire me on. My dad was uh, an elder there at the time, so people would be like, oh, you had your foot in the door. But I was also known to the church. My family was known to the church. My family was respected in the church. So I think there was that piece as well. So it's certainly not like, a, oh, Brandon, he's the top guy. He's got the most accolades and credentials. I don't think there was that. I think it was like, here's a trusted family in the church. Here's a known guy. Maybe he's got some potential, right? We'll take a chance on him. It was like mm-hmm. a, a less risky <laughs> thing. Um, but that was my first ministry job in, uh, in pastoral, pastoral job. It was back in 2000. I think it was back in 2011. Maybe 2010. No, I think it was 2011. I'm pretty sure it was 2011. And yeah, October 2011. Because uh, coming up here on, I think, 12 years, if that makes sense. Whatever it is. It was back in early... Uh, 2011 around there. But anyway, it uh, it was great. I was, a uh, for a while, the interim youth pastor there. And so I mainly focused on the youth. Did some stuff, youth uh, youth group at night. 
learned how to teach a little bit. At first, I had this big world religions thing I was going to do. I always look back at that and think it's so funny. There's like these middle schoolers and high schools, and I have this like big chart of all these world religions, and I'm going through <laughs> it. It's like 12 PowerPoint. I'm looking at it. I'm like, okay, i got to figure out how to teach better. So it was one of these hilarious things I'm going through, like the intricacies of Buddhism. And I'm like, ah, eh, there's got to be a better yeah. way. To, <laughs> compared to Christianity, I'm just getting a lot of blank stares. But God was good. People were encouraging and supportive. Um, and it was neat to, to kind of go back to the 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 local church that I was reared in, heard the mm. gospel and these kinds of things, and see a ton of people that I knew already, but then also a lot of people I didn't who had come mm. in the in the subsequent years or the previous years um, leading up to that who were new. And so that was a blessing. Got to uh, uh, do a number of different things. It was a blessing. But after three months of doing that, I think, um, then the senior pastor approached me and said, how would you like to come on in a more full-time capacity? It was like three quarters or something mm. like that time. So I was quarter time. They wanted to bring me on more full-time. So they approached me and they said, would you want to do that and have more added responsibility? So I think my first title was Assistant Pastor for Youth and Ministry Operations. Mm-hmm. And basically it was like ministry operations will include everything the senior pastor assigns to you. You know, so discipleship, I did a lot with discipleship with the adults, did some stuff with our college students, um, and then also got my first opportunity to preach. Mm-hmm. So that was a blessing. Um, and uh, I look back at that and it, it was, I think, one of those January sermons where it was like, you know, coming off of a holiday and so I'm pretty sure I called it um, a resolution for the elect was the title of it. It came from Luke uh, Luke 18. And um, just fascinating to think about looking back on it uh, because it was the story of the unjust judge and the widow. When, when the widow is just, you know, pleading, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And then finally, um, justice is given. And actually, I think it's Luke 19. I look at th- no, I'm thinking, I don't have the Bible in front of me, but I think that's right. But um, then it says, how much more will your Father in heaven give you justice mm-hmm. if this widow gets justice from an unjust judge? This beautiful story the Lord Jesus tells. And uh, basically, the resolution was connected to finding faith on earth, and it was connected to praying. And uh, it was neat to, to be around these people who I had known growing up, to get, give my first sermon there, and then to hear how they were blessed by that. And it was really one of these confirming moments where, I was like, I need to continue to do this. It was like, all right, Lord, I, I sensed your presence there. But also it was like people were edified and encouraged. Mm-hmm. I got good feedback from the elders of the church, from the senior pastor. And so I was given a few more preaching opportunities. And it was great. Loved it. And so I did that for three and a half years total. And then in the in the time leading up to whenever I left that church and went to my uh, uh, my next church, it was interesting because I got connected to a group of like it was a network of pastors Um and it was something new. It was um, it was led by Hutz Hertzberg, and it was like this thing called the Orchard Network is what they called it. And it was great. We met on Friday mornings, um, and uh, it was just a real joy. We gathered with, with brothers trying to grow in ministry, a lot of young guys, a lot of guys all around the Chicagoland area. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was still at our, uh, the church I was at Wheeling, Our Savior Evangelical Free Church, and I was there for, like I said, three and a half years, church I grew up in. But I was looking for maybe what was next in terms of the ministry responsibilities and Somehow, um, uh, essentially what happened was I got connected to a pastor over there who said, hey, how would you like to come over here and, and be the pastor of congregational life? So there'd be more responsibilities. It wouldn't be youth anymore. It'd be adults. And the question was related to you'll have preaching opportunities, yes, but you'll also have opportunities to disciple and get to know people. it be a lot of pastoral care. And the church was much larger, probably, I mean, I'm trying to think of size-wise. The church I was at in Wheeling was like maybe a hundred and. 50, 200 in that range, maybe people total. So I would, I knew everyone I almost felt like more mm. like a family. Then, um, 
this other church was was massive. I mean, um, uh, probably it was multi-site church at that time. It was the Orchard Evangelical Free Church. That's the place that I served at. And it was, um, I don't even know how many people were at the church at the time, but much, much larger. Mm. And basically one of the questions I was asked was, would you be able to triple or double the number of people or even quadruple the number of people that you know by face, know by name? Because we really need to have that personal pastoral connection where you can you know, get people connected. Mm. And so the pastoral congregational life role was about, yes, preaching some, discipleship, mm. but it was also pastoral care. It was also about being that welcoming presence, that pastor who kind of gets to know people. And I was excited about that, so we prayed about it. And then I went over in uh, 2015 mm. uh, there, and um, I left my other church. So still the free church. And um, continue to grow there and iron out how to preach the word, how to handle the text, get some good feedback, um, and also manage some staff over there, too. That was a different thing. I'd done a little bit of that with interns over at Our Savior, but this is a whole new scale. Mm-hmm. It was like eight or nine people who were reporting to me, a very different kind of a feel. At first, it was three or four. Then I kind of started leading the campus more. It was a very different feel and uh, a lot more responsibility. It, overall, um, it had been a blessing. It really was a blessing to learn that. So I praise God for it. And, uh, uh, you know, looking back, it really did sharpen my ministry skills on the whole and uh, still maintain a number of good friends over there. So very exciting. I want to ask you, um, I'm assuming that, you know, like all of us, a lot of our uh, trajectory overlaps in different areas. Yeah. So I asked you about your theology, but yeah. during this time, yeah. I'm wondering about your ecclesiology, yeah. your your church polity. How was that evolving during oh, this time? It was changing so much. One of the first things that I did when I went to the first church, the church I grew up in at Our Savior, in the first few weeks, we went out to a weekender conference, mm-hmm. Nine Marks Weekender Conference in uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Got to observe an elders meeting, saw the deliberation of a church that actually took seriously shepherding, um, was at a members meeting. Um, on Sunday evening, uh, literally where we watched an excommunication go down. And it was one of these things where they took so seriously the bride of Christ, the, the local church. They took so seriously the, the weight of pastoral ministry. But they did it in a way where you could tell these were men who loved the Word of God and um, who wanted to take that shepherding responsibility very seriously. And it was neat because these weekender conferences are a lot of pastors flying out from all over the country even the world and observing the way that Elders meetings work. So we're mostly observing. It's sitting on some thing, uh, different talks on church membership and, and uh, these kinds of things. And uh, it was a blessing to meet some other brothers out there, but also to have elevated right out of the gate this sense of you are stewarding something that is very serious. You are taking very seriously the life of hmm. the church. And so my, my ecclesiology was deepened. Greatly then. I always say I didn't have much of an ecclesiology. It was kind of the church. I got some fun memories there. But then it went from that to this is the bride of Christ and the imagery of the New Testament of just, um, again, again, the people of God, the fellowship of faith, these kinds of things. You see so many metaphors in the New Testament for the church. And it was just a good reminder that, um, yeah, this this is not mine. This is not my, These are not my people. I have the privilege of serving for a season. That's the key part. For a season as an under-shepherd, under the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, and to point to his word, to his grace, to his glory, and to to help these people treasure Christ more fully. And that was a massive responsibility that I think was deepened as a result of that conference. Now, uh, it continued to 
be a great joy that was implemented in terms of when we gathered. So I was not an elder um, uh, on uh, paper, as it were, at that first church, but I sat in on all those elder meetings. So I got to go there, pray with the men, would take some pastoral touch points, these kinds of things. Actually, it's not entirely true. The last like few weeks or months before, they actually changed my role, so I did become an elder. But it was like it was only a month or two. You know, it wasn't long mm-hmm. at all. So um, I guess I was technically an elder for a little while. But it was it was great to be with these brothers who were treating me as an equal, who were also like serious about praying for people, following up with members who were absent, caring for the sick, uh, you know, the needy, these kinds of things. And that was a huge, huge blessing. I also got the privilege and joy to work with the deacons. Uh, there and I oversaw the deacons. So the deacons there mostly did a lot of mercy ministry, as a number of deacons do. But they were involved in a lot of people's lives, a lot of meal trains, these kinds of things. And so got to work with some wonderful deacons um, there at Our Savior. But then my ecclesiology started to change, where I started to see in you know some different categories um, when it comes to offices in the church. So for example, the New Testament gives us two offices. The Lord gives us elder. It's synonymous with pastor, you think of bishop, these kinds of things, elders, and then also deacons. Mm-hmm. The two biblically prescribed offices in the local church, and there aren't others. So there aren't trustees, there aren't committees, there aren't, name it, you know, there aren't these different roles. Um, and so that started to shape the way I started to do church in terms of, okay, let's try to actually help people see that these offices are not just made up, we could just fill them with anything, director or these kinds of things. They actually have to have meaning and substance drawn from the Word of God. We want everything to be found and done according to the Word of God. Um, I was still growing in that, but I knew that church discipline needed to happen. I knew that it was important. Um, It was also important to do it biblically, so not just drag them to the front. It was important to do it according to what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. It was important to actually have that rooted in the Word and to be done in a manner that would honor Him. And so to see that put into practice there was a blessing. When I went over to um, the orchard, it was interesting because early on I was told, I'm not sure how you practice discipline in a large church like ours. I don't know if it's possible. Mm. Now, I was already hired on at that point, but that kind of rattled me and jarred me and continues. Even to this day, I look back and then I'm like, well, you, you have to do that because it's biblically faithful. And John Calvin and others um, very clearly connected the marks of a faithful church, it seems to me, to not only the right preaching of the Word of God and the right administration of the sacraments, but also um, church discipline is kind of three stool marks of the local church, you know, a healthy local church. And others have elaborated on that as well. So I found that comment uh, strange. But theologically, I found myself saying, you know what, even if that's what a pastor on staff thinks, I can't embrace that. And I need to actually be faithful to the Lord has called me to. So theologically, I found myself uh, a little uncomfortable with the multi-site model, but thinking, you know what, there's a possibility that this could be something that actually develops where they spin off and they go and take become local churches there. So in my mind, I'm thinking maybe there's some possibilities for that down the road. But also I saw a great opportunity to learn how to become a better preacher and pastor and care for the people's souls. I had a number of friends over there as well, so it was networking there as well. And I found myself, though, theologically realizing more and more, okay, I need to grow. I need to take the next step in my ministry. Um, I want to have a sustainable ministry for the long haul. And um, and so that was something that I think was, was again, in God's providential timing, he led me over there. But theologically, I would say that it always, it always didn't sit right with me. There was like multi-site, multi-service. I never liked that. The video preaching, that was something that always graded me the wrong way. I always tried to move away from that. Um, and I also didn't realize, too, at the time, over at 
uh, the Orchard Evangelical Free Church, how much was sung by way of Hillsong and Bethel? How much was sung by way of these prosperity gospel teachers and preachers or those that platform and praise them and partner with them? And that really started rubbing me the wrong way, like almost within a year of being over there. Mm. It was one of these um, odd things where a church that claimed to be so gospel-centered and focusing on the gospel would do that, and uh, and yet continues to and continue to, and, and it didn't seem like to bother many many of them. Um, mm. Even the pastors on staff, it was surprising how few of them seemed uh, troubled by that. But again, I'd bring up a principle like the regulative principle, and most of the other pastors had no idea what that was. They're like, what is that? And I'm trying to have a discussion about, well, let's, how do we think about this? Um, and I just kind of got blank stares. So I know that that was something that we didn't agree and share, but I also started to realize with the church discipline comment, with the, the, the structure of a worship service taking seriously the regulative principle, which is just if we're going to do this in our worship service, we have to find clear warrant for it in the Word of God mm. to be done to the glory of God. So I found myself theologically, I think, becoming more convictional as a confessional reformed Baptist and finding myself a little bit like a fish out of water there increasingly year after year, even though I think the Lord was blessing the ministry of pastoral care, the ministry of preaching, sharpening and honing me that way. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, continue to work um, in spite of some of those things and in spite of some frustrations as well. So that's, that's a little bit there. I could probably share more about some theological developments at some point, but don't want to take up all the time here. <laughs> no, no, that's great stuff. Um, I just want to ask you along those lines, um, did you experience as your growing convictions implementing, well, implementing pastoral ministry at um, the big church? Yeah. And as you started to study things on your own, did you experience a cage stage uh, in your growth, would you say? Or did the Lord preserve you from that? It's, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think that he mostly preserved me from that, though probably I want to talk to someone who's closer to me to actually get their, their feedback on that. But I think that mostly I was preserved only because I found myself so busy. There were so many needs. It was an overwhelming season. Like There, there was a funeral a week at this large church, mm. a funeral a week. And it wasn't always me doing those. The vast majority were done Excuse me, by another uh, faithful uh, brother uh, who was kind of the pastor to seniors and care there. But I did probably, I don't know, there was a season when I was doing 30%, 25% of those. Mm -hmm. And so I would say probably, it's not an exaggeration to say that, you know, even though I've been in ministry for, what, almost 12 years, I've probably done near, like, close to 100 funerals. And mm -hmm. that's only because of those five and a half years, I just had, I did a couple Sundays where it was like, or Saturdays, excuse me, where I had two funerals, one mm -hmm. in the morning, one in the afternoon. That, that's a lot. That was a lot. So that kind of, again, threw me in the learning to care well for people. It was just the demands of ministry. But I think I was preserved from that because unlike many um, who do ministry today, I was not sheltered from the difficulties of life, whether it's that diagnosis, whether it's the deathbed, whether mm -hmm. it's the hospital visit. I was very much thrown into that and, and gladly embraced it. I didn't mind walking that at all. I obviously love to preach and teach God's word, and I wanted to do that more. And, and I was, by God's grace, I had a lot of opportunities to do that. But um, it was also a lot of pastoral care, a lot of you know weeping with people, a lot of walking alongside people in difficult marriages and with with you know prodigal son kids, this kind of a thing. So I found myself very busy there, um, and, and also wanting to really minister the word to people and 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 make sure there was a sense of their conviction of sin and 
understanding the righteousness and the holy of God, but also the mercy of God mm-hmm. and the grace of God in Christ, and then to be amazed at that and in awe of that and have it drive a lot of what they do. So there was just a lot of that. And I think, too, the other thing that I would say is Mark Dever once said that in a message he gave at uh, uh, a conference, he said that uh, false conversions are the suicide of the church. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the concern I had increasingly there at that large church was there was a lot of false conversions. There was a lot of people who thought, I'm saved, I'm a professing mm-hmm. Christian, and I just, I'm not so sure. Based on the little fruit that was being born, based upon the things that were said that were inconsistent with Scripture, and not not like this deep level, just this basic sense mm-hmm. of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, fearing God, these kinds of things, and even the little value that was placed upon the the study of the Word of God. And, uh, and and these kinds of things, and even the proclamation of the gospel, and mm. having spiritually meaningful conversation, and, and 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 standing strong, and embracing kind of the fact that we are going to be hated, just like the Lord Jesus was hated, as mm. as He told us. You know, a teacher is not, or a student is not above his teacher, right? If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. I think there was such a little cost that people were going to pay there that that was a growing concern as well. So I was really trying to make sure: Are you soundly converted? Mm. Is there a sense of you do fear the Lord, you know that he is holy, you know that you're a sinner, you know that Christ alone is the only one who could save you, and that uh, it is it is his person, his work that you're relying on, not at all your own. Um, and uh, I got the sense more and more there was, I, I, I did, at the, probably it's not an exaggeration to say I did hundreds of membership interviews there. We had a ton of new members come there, um, probably like close to five or six hundred members came in there during those five and a half years. Wow. It was a hundred a year, roughly. And that was just at the campus there, hmm. so it's remarkable. About a hundred a year for the for the five years there, and then there's there's other campuses as well that had many who came in, and we tried to strengthen the membership process there, mm-hmm. and to really press home what is your understanding of the gospel, and ask that classic uh, D. James Kennedy evangelism mm-hmm. explosion question mm-hmm. of, if you died tonight, what would your confidence be that God would accept you in His heavenly kingdom? Just listen to the answer, right? To draw out the theology that was there. And you heard, uh, sadly, so frequently this Jesus and or good works, you know, mm-hmm. he knows my heart. I can't tell you how many times I heard something like that. Um, and, and to which we just have to say, you know, friend, that should terrify you. Your heart is worse than, you know, your heart is in some ways mm-hmm. uh, the, the place where not only is it totally uh, deceived, totally depraved, but you actually, I'm hoping, aren't living consistently in light of your own heart because mm-hmm. the, the, the mess that would come out of there, the sin that would come out of there. Um, and so this this sense of God knows my heart, or I've tried hard, or I have faith in Jesus, and I've tried to live obediently instead of this Christ alone, mm-hmm. God's grace alone. Um, there was too much of that, and it was sad. We had to turn away a number of, of folks, and uh, some were hard feelings, but there was also a sense of many wanted to lower that standard. There was a number of people coming out of Willow Creek and Harvest at the time, and um, uh, a number of them... Uh, you know, we're oh, this is great. We got all this new influx of people coming, but I was like, we have to make sure they're soundly converted. We can't mm. just open the gate wide because oh, they got hurt at their last church. Right. And there was a sense of no, we need to be loving, accepting, and not everyone's a theologian, and you know, all these excuses um, that was that was really hard, and and um, it was hard to hear that because it, sometimes there was just this desire to water things down, and it wasn't for people who had just been there recently. Some of these people have been there ten, fifteen years, and they said. Um, these answers that you're like, you you sat under this preaching for 10, 15 years, and that's your answer to what's the gospel? One lady said, I I don't know what grace is. We've never heard that before. Um, and so that just grieves you, breaks your heart, but it also realizes 
2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are many who can maybe find a social group, a social club there, uh, friendship there even, and tolerate the sermons or ignore the sermons and then kind of go on with their life. So I think that was the growing concern is not enough shepherds who actually were taking seriously shepherding the flock, mm-hmm. knowing their hearts, knowing where they're at spiritually. And then this big emphasis on numbers, this big emphasis on bigger, better, more, more, um, that I know takes over a lot of churches um, and a lot of mindsets um, of anyone, even even small church pastors that takes over their mindsets sometimes, our mindsets sometimes. But I think that at the end of the day, theologically, when it comes to my own convictions, they got deepened to just take seriously, we need to know this flock, we need to make sure that they are faithfully coming and honoring their membership covenant, but also we're equipping them. Mm. Uh, as Ephesians 4 says, we're equipping them for the works of ministry that these saints need to be involved with. And then we're doing what Matthew 28 says, right? And we're saying, okay, the Lord Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now a lot of people stop there. Mm. But it says, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, that discipleship is ongoing, and mm-hmm. it is about teaching them all that Jesus commanded, which is so important for us to realize. That means the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who spoke Genesis to Revelation, Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Mm-hmm. All Scripture is breathed out by God. We have to, to teach and preach and equip people with all the counsel of God's Word, and that also includes Genesis all the way through Revelation, and we have to be faithful to do that because that task is being neglected right now, and, and sadly, it's it's um, something that is extremely costly uh, for the next generation's willingness to stand for Christ, but also for uh, not just their willingness to stand, but also for that judgment day. When I fear, many will hear, Lord, Lord, do we not do this and that? And the Lord's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because we weren't faithful to that first call of taking seriously, we are to shepherd their souls. Like Hebrews 13 says, uh, 13, uh, 17 says, excuse me. That our leader, as leaders in the church, we are to shepherd, we are to shepherd mm. their souls because we're keeping watch over them, who have to give an account. And so, if we have to give an account for these souls. We got to make sure we can say honestly, Lord, they knew your gospel, they treasured your Son, they were trusting not in their works but Christ alone. They they were growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. I watch mm. your Spirit at work within them. They were they were bearing fruit, and we were encouraging them, and when necessary, rebuking them and correcting them and loving them to your glory. And so. Um, that was a concern that I had increasingly. It was a sense of, well, we got a lot of people here, um, and uh, it's a lot of responsibility. Uh, a line that a pastor once said was, you don't want to be everyone's personal chaplain. He always say that. Don't want to be pers- everyone's personal chaplain. And I was like, I understand. It's a big church. But frankly, if there isn't a sense in which you're actually getting to know what's going mm-hmm. on in people's lives, should you still be in pastoral ministry? Mm-hmm. And, and the answer I kept coming up with was, I don't think so. I don't think that's a faithful model. When you think about smelling like the sheep, you're thinking about being with the sheep and bearing their burdens. And even what the Lord rebuked his people with in Ezekiel, mm-hmm. very clearly of, I will feed my people because you are not. You're just making yourself fat, this kind of a thing. And, and I just, uh, I think, woe to those who would say, I don't need to take seriously the responsibility of knowing the condition of my flock. Their state of their marriages, yes. How they're raising their kids, yes. Um, even if if there's something in their lives as, car, as far as a besetting sin goes. And that was one thing that happened often at the orchard where a lot of couples are, oh, they're getting divorced. I had no idea. Their marriage seemed to be great. And they're a stage four, you know, crisis their marriage. And you're like, mm. 
you know, you never knew about this. No one reached out. It was the first time I've told a pastor and they're on their way to get divorced. Um, and it wasn't something that, again, I, I think you could pin on one single person and say it's his mm-hmm. fault or whatever. But I do think that the culture there did not lend itself to this family, this household of God, this we know one each other, we're, mm-hmm. each other, we're known, we're accountable, we're, we care for one another, bear each other's burdens. If anything, it was like this kind of consumer come in, come mm-hmm. out mentality um, and to get your spirituality on and then go out and uh, do your thing throughout the week and just don't get in trouble, don't get arrested or something. And I just think that uh, that's just a very low bar mm-hmm. in terms of what we need in terms of faithful disciples, committed disciples following the Lord Jesus especially in the context of 21st century America with all the challenges, with all the, um, you know, bigotry and persecution against Christians. You need to have a, a, a body of Christ, a local assembly of believers who's committed to saying, we're going to bear each other's burdens, but we're also not going to be ashamed of the gospel. We're not going to be ashamed of Christ. Wow. Thank you. That's a lot of good stuff there. I um, perceive that there's a passion and a burden um, that you feel um, linked to your calling and linked to the ministry of the word and applying that ministry, applying that word to people's lives. And that has preserved you from keeping things, controversial things, doctrinal things on a theoretical level. Mm-hmm. But the rubber meets the road right alongside the people. Yep. And um, probably that's the missing ingredient in a lot of cage stage people where they're in the classroom or in their dorm room. And that's yeah. all they have to do is deal with these theoretical issues right, and not apply right. them because right. they just associate with each other mm-hmm. um, on their floor. Yep. Whereas uh, the Lord has guided you in your personal trajectory to actually uh, be applying these mm-hmm. truths of the word yeah. to people's lives uh, throughout the week. And uh, I do want to ask about... Uh, the ministry of the word, the pulpit ministry, preaching. You uh, said that you preached your first message at the church that you grew up in. Yep, and then willing, yeah. you did feel that it was uh, fruitful in the sense that you got some positive feedback. So you got a confirmation somewhat of a, yeah. of a, of a call. And um, that has stayed with you up to this point. Now, I want to connect that with your growing um, convictions along the lines of a more in a more reformational direction as yeah. far as we talked about the theology we talked a little bit about the polity and ecclesiology and then now um the the evolution of when you came to first baptist to mm-hmm. now christ the king yeah reformed baptist church yeah that's great well the the pre the, the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word as the phrase goes you know as the as the pulpit goes, so the people go. And you do see wherever there is a diminishment of the preaching of the Word of God, people being spiritually starved who genuinely are Christians, or people being entertained who are not, and then having more demands placed upon um, that pastor, um, and even being coerced into preach on my latest theme instead of the theme of, you know, Christ and Him crucified, and the and the gospel which Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen is of first importance, right, um, by which you are being saved if you hold fast uh, to it. And then goes on in details that according to the Scripture, Christ died and was buried according to the Scripture. Christ rose again according to the Scripture. And so yeah. you think about what Paul said concerning the supremacy of Christ, concerning the centrality of the gospel, 
but then also concerning the nature of, of faith. In Romans 10, where it talks about faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of Christ. I think it was the second Helvetic confession where in this historic uh, reformational document, you know, it talked about the preaching of the word is the word. The preaching of the word of God is the word, which is to say where the word of God is rightly preached correctly in the, the same vein by which the Lord revealed it. That is the, that is the word of God going forth. Again, not men adding to the works of or the words of God, but men taking the words of God and pressing it home and, and pressing it home on the hearers of those who are present. Um, where the word of God is faithfully preached, that's where the word of God is. And so uh, Romans 10 talked about this. Faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And so insofar as we are faithful in our local churches and recognize the only thing that's ultimately going to be profitable is by holding fast to this word and preaching this word. That's the only thing that's not going to return void. That's the only thing that's not going to come back empty, even if it feels like no one's converted over time. And are you even doing any good? And people are just angry and you're preaching the word. I think that at the end of the day, where you have the spirit-filled people of God, genuinely born-again, regenerate brothers and sisters, and they come and they gather under the Lordship of Christ, and they're hearing the word preached, and they're being nourished and fed and built up, and they're saying, Amen. Again, some for many who've grown up in uh, you know theologically rich traditions or have studied a lot, it might be more by way of reminder where they can say, yes, thank you, I needed to hear that. But then also there might be words of comfort, right? The, the famous phrase, I don't know who first coined it, but when you're preaching, the, the, the Spirit of God has this, has this amazing ability in that he can actually take your words and takes the words of the text that are faithfully taught, that not only feed the flock, and also even uh, warn those who are false teachers away and, and encourage them to flee. But also it it, it comforts. And so a, a text can be both comforting to those that are afflicted, as that phrase goes, or afflict those who are, I'm comfortable, I'm fine, I don't need more of Christ, I don't need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It has this cutting edge effect. And a lot of people build ministries on different things, but um, pastor friend of mine, uh, Paul, um, uh, he and Mark Dever wrote a book, and what they talk about in there, in how to build a healthy church, is it was the, it's actually the new version of Deliberate Church. But what they say in there, I think, is so helpful that if you're going to have a vision, a plan, this is really what I have held on to now for a number of years. I find it so helpful. Is you want to preach the word of God faithfully, right? You you can have all the visions in the world, the strategy in the world, but if you're not preaching the word faithfully, of what profit will that ultimately be? If it's going to be your words, it's going to shape the direction, the trajectory. It's going to be your words that are building up the body. That's going to fall apart. That's going to sink. You're going to maybe rah-rah a few people who like the way you say that or, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's not God's word. It's not inspired. We have one word, right? We have one book. And so we want to appeal to that and go back to that uh, without shame, with clarity and repeatedly. But what they said, Dever and Alexander in that book that's so helpful is preach the word faithfully, uh, pray like crazy, right? Pray all the time. And they said they called it the four Ps. So preach the word faithfully, pray faithfully. And then they said build personal, this is the other P, personal discipleship relationships. And then be patient. Watch that recipe of the Lord doing his work through his word as you are dependent on him in prayer, as you are putting forth the words of truth, the words of life. Um, and then as you are, are patiently building these relationships where you know these people and you are personally acquainted with their griefs and by the grace of God also building a culture through the word where uh, this is a sense in which we are rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. We are members one another and that's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen over time as the word of God is uh, preached faithfully. And so I think 
the pulpit ministry is so important, but also the the regular preaching of the word. So we're we're prayerfully considering what it looks like to add an evening service. Sinclair Ferguson famously once said, you know, after after all, it's the Lord's day, not the Lord's morning. You know, so we we are thinking about Lord willing doing that at some point, implementing that in the near future. We have a prayer meeting we think is uh, central on Wednesday, and we think that's just critical to be dependent on the Lord in prayer as a as a church, as a corporate body. But then we also want to recognize that. What comes out of the pulpit, what comes from the pulpit, has to be the Word of God. And so that's why we do have some feedback loop of, let's hear a review. Let's hear some um, some feedback on that sermon. And we invite the congregation to do the same, of like, hey, if anything was unclear, um, obviously if anything was edifying, praise God for that. But we don't want this to be a, a place where it's just someone waxing eloquently and occasionally getting it right. We want every line to be the sense of, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God coming forth. And it's going to actually, by the grace of God, encourage you, strengthen you, bless you, maybe convict you and lead you to repent where that's necessary, but also lead you to be stirred up to realize my life is not my own. My life belongs to Christ. And uh, that only comes through the word. It's not going to come through um, the strategies of men. It's not going to come through let's have people go on this missions trip or have this experience. It's got to come through the word. That's the only sustainable ministry that ultimately I think glorifies God. And so, um, yeah, pulpit ministry has been something that I've, I, I, I greatly love, but I also sense the weight of and the burden of. I know that um, it's been a great joy to have our, our pastoral assistant um, do a few of those uh, and preach the word some then. But I, but I also will tell you that, you know, there's always part of me, too, that's like I don't want to preach less. I like to preach a lot. So, I, <laughs> you know, I think that's a good thing where you're like, well, this is something the Lord's called me to. So there should be this sense of, oh, finally a break. Though, of course, everyone needs to have that. Um, and it's good not just to hear from one person. You want to have a diversity of biblically qualified men handling the word faithfully and feeding the flock so that if, Lord forbid, anything did happen to me, then someone else would be able to pick up and continue that ministry of the word and people wouldn't miss a beat. Um, they might miss me, you know, but I'd be with the Lord. You guys would be, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's a blessing to be in the in the position to be able to preach the word faithfully and have that pulpit ministry, but also to treat with a seriousness that I think, sadly, too many churches don't. At the last church I served at, there was... Uh, some expository preaching book by book, verse by verse, but it was more topical. That's how it was more organized. And um, uh, again, uh, much much was faithful there by way of the sermons, but I will tell you that there was a tendency to do exactly what expository preaching um, graciously, in the Lord's kindness, of preaching book by book avoids, and that's namely skipping over the hard parts. Mm. Because there were a lot of texts that were just conveniently skipped or overlooked mm. uh, there. And what you do is then you actually stunt the saints from growing. And you don't equip them with the mm-hmm. full counsel of God's word. You don't equip them to stand. And uh, so sadly, you would hear sermons over there on Genesis 1, on Romans 1, and there would be zero mention of anything related to sexual sins outside of, of marriage, zero mention of sodomy or homosexuality, zero mention of that. Mm. Um, because it was a oh, cultural issue, political issue, but... Just to have one or two lines about, um, and br- just to look us in the eyes and mm. to say, I know that the culture is pressuring you right now to cave. Mm. But brother and sister, stand strong. This is the word of God. He has given it to us to be blessed. He has given us to us to walk faithfully in this. And we dare not compromise what our Lord has said. Just a couple lines like that would have gone so far because there was mm. some confusion over there on on uh, what the church believed about basic matters of even marriage and things like that. So mm. it was it was sad to see what was, I would consider, a missed opportunity uh, mm-hmm. over there. And, uh, uh, again, I think that hopefully there were other conversations happening I don't know about, but at the end of the day, that's one of the key moments where you can actually take a text that's clearly there, Genesis 1, Romans mm-hmm. 1, and press home the truth of, uh, friends, this is what God's Word says, 
And uh, here's how we can apply this. A lot of you are environments where you are being encouraged and pressured to cave, to act like this is not a sin, to redefine sin. But the Bible says, do not be deceived. Mm. And and you need to know that it is a deception and a great deception to not call a fellow image bearer, a neighbor to repent, not of some sins, but of all sins, mm. and to trust in the Lord. Because I know people can make too much out of certain sins uh, in, in our day. And we always like to make more out of other people's sins. That's like a natural thing we just do as as depraved sinners, right? We do that. But at the same time, what I see sadly is so much compromise. And uh, sadly, the Apostle Paul, when he says, do not be deceived, it's not any of these other sins that people are encouraged to not preach on and teach on. It's the sins of homosexuality. It's some of these sins that people are not actually calling their friends to repent of. Mm. And it's not just that. There's pride. There's idolatry. There's so many other things. But those sins are not pet sins that our culture is celebrating, encouraging people to, to bless and encourage today and endorse. And uh, it's so sad to see someone who's clearly calling himself a self-professing Christian who won't then take the necessary and logical step to say, brother, sister, the word of God says this, let us obey our God, let us honor our king, let us recognize that we love our neighbors too much to deny them, to not deny them, excuse me, the truth of what God's word says. So what I'm hearing is that you do not subscribe to the notion that God whispers about certain sins. <laughs> I cannot tell you, when I heard that quote, it absolutely infuriated me. I do not subscribe to that in any way, shape, or form. Literally, most of the Old and the New Testament uh, detail very clearly God's standards for marriage, uh, sexuality, gender, these kinds of things. And it's because a lot of times those things, especially in the ancient Near East, if you look in the Hebrew Bible, but also um, if you press forward in the New Testament in the Greco-Roman times, they were wrapped up with an idolatry. So these these sexual deviant practices are wrapped up in all sorts of idolatry. And uh, that is, you know, when it comes to being a Christian and being light and salt, and even if you read a great book by like uh, Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body, when she details some of the way with which Christians come, and by the, by the grace of God, they're preaching and teaching monogamy in the context of covenantal marriage between one man and one woman, that was just so elevating for these women. And, and it was a blessing because it was an expectation these Roman men would just go out and sleep with whoever, male, female, whatever, slave, other prostitutes, whatever else. What that did was there's a great line in the early um, uh, church historian, I think it was, um, if I'm remembering correctly, Tacitus. It might be wrong on that. If it is, some church historian can correct me. But basically he said that he was commenting on Christians and he said, they share everything in common except their except their spouses. They share everything in common except their spouses. It was one of these great quotes where you see they have this love for one another, but when it comes to sexual sin, the church of God was marked by her purity, her holiness. And so, no, the idea that God whispers concerning, and I know it was in the context of compared to uh, greed and materialism, the Lord seems to whisper on matters of sexual morality. That's just nonsense and garbage. It really is. It's actually evil to say that. And frankly, disqualifying. Um, when J.D. Greer said that, his elders should have loved him enough to call him to repent publicly, and then he should have resigned. Um, and, and, and others, you know, like, frankly, Tim Keller. I know this is probably going to cause some, ruffle some feathers, but back in 2009, Tim Keller uh, literally said, uh, well, I know that homosexuality doesn't send anyone to hell because heterosexuality doesn't send anyone to heaven. He got a little snicker and a laugh, and everyone thought that was so clever and cutesy. But at the end of the day, it's, it's deceptive, it's evil, and it's, it's not loving of one's neighbor. The Bible teaches consistently and clearly um, that we are all sinners, 
And that, yes, homosexuality is a sin. It doesn't mean it's the unforgivable sin. It's not. It's not the unforgivable sin. Paul literally says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you to the church in Corinth. And that was like the, I've heard one Bible commentator talk about how Corinth, ancient Corinth was like the, the modern day Amsterdam, Las Vegas, combined with San Francisco. You know I mean? There's all sorts of pagan, you know, practices happening there, sexual deviancies happening there. But uh, no, the idea that the Bible whispers concerning uh, sexual sin is absurd. Um, the, the Greek word porneia is, is very clearly referring to anything outside of covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. The Lord Jesus uh, clearly condemns that. And when you look at the Old and the New Testaments, it's so clear. People will say things like, Oh, Jesus never said anything concerning homosexuality, right? They love saying that because they're appealing to the Gospels and what it says there. The problem with that, of course, is that they mix up who Jesus is. Their Christology is so confused. And a lot of people have such a confused Christology that they're betraying when they say that. They think it's all clever. A politician recently said that. But it's utterly foolish. Jesus is the divine Son of God. And as we mentioned earlier, he has spoke all Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God from Genesis to Revelation. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who actually spoke those words. And he actually did address these matters as well. We have to be very clear on that. The Lord Jesus did address these matters in Matthew 19 and in other texts um, where he uses the word porneia. But I just think the fact that so many evangelicals are confused on that shows, again, our biblical literacy and confusion, but also shows we've not been equipped according to the word of God. So, again, is it the most important of all things uh, that, that, uh, that, that people get that right? I tell people... It's a gospel issue because you're redefining the nature of sin, the nature of the lordship of Christ. You're redefining the gospel itself. And if you lead a person to a place where they're going to bless what God says is cursed, is condemned, and they'll actually be judged for and spend eternity apart from him for, that is so unloving. That is so hateful to your neighbor, but it's also blaspheming your Lord. And so there's a lot of evangelicals today. I was even looking at it recently in a Zondervan academic catalog I got. And they have these different views, right? They have these four views of this, you know, two views of this. And they've got all these different views. And then in there is two views on homosexuality and the church. And I'm looking at this, and D.A. Carson uh, brought up wisely, I think, how one of those is not like the other. So it's not like the age of the earth. It's not like some of these things. This is something that Christians have never, up till five minutes ago, had a dispute upon. Um, and yet you're having a lot of people who are tearing apart the church on this matter. And the, the thing is, they're schismatic, too. That's the thing. Because at the end of the day, the schismatic or the one who's divisive is not the one who is holding to the truth. It's the one who would come and bring in new truth. It's the one who would add to the Word of God or try to undermine the Word of God by saying, but this, but that. And I find it, frankly, refreshing that there's a guy like uh, Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson down at uh, Emory, New Testament scholar, who will say, um, we know better than Paul. He'll say, we know what the Bible clearly says. We know better. Uh, just be be honest. Be refreshing. It's refreshing to have that honesty, even from a liberal Roman Catholic guy uh, like him on the issue. But I think that when it comes to our day and age, so many Christians are deceived, and they think they're loving their neighbor, but they're actually hating their neighbor, and they're showing they don't fear the Lord, but they fear man more than that. And so we have to hold fast to the word, preach and teach the whole counsel of his word, and call everyone, regardless of their pet sins and their preferences, these kinds of things, to, to treasure Christ, to look to Christ and be saved. Because it's not a matter of be saved from selective sins. It's a matter of cast it all on him. Cast it all on him. Um, and, and realize that you have sins that you uh, cherish, but they all need to be cast on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only when we repent of those sins and call upon him uh, for that mercy and for that grace that we can be saved. And I think a lot of people just lose sight of that. They think it's, well, it's not that big of a deal. We can agree to disagree um, on that. But we, we dare not mock the Lord and add to his word or twist his word just because it feels better 
It is more socially acceptable. And again, I know it's costly. It's costly for a lot of us. Um, many of us have family um, who we love, and um, they think we're bigots or whatever else. And we just got to be very careful to realize, look, the Lord, the Lord is worthy of our allegiance uh, more than what anyone else thinks, no matter the cost. The Lord is worthy of this. And, uh, and, and to his name be praised. Yeah, that's great stuff. Um, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, I find it curious, uh, and you hinted at this, that um, many biblical pastors, preachers, leaders are chided or rebuked yeah. for sliding into a culture war type mm-hmm. mentality. Mm-hmm. But the other side is advocating for, like you said, twisting of Scripture, yeah. interpreting things one way, mm-hmm. which is totally contrary yep. to God's revealed Word. Amen. So, you know, whether we like to or whether we want to or not, this quote-unquote culture war is being thrust upon us. Now, I'm not a pastor, but I imagine as a pastor, you, as, as part of observing the flock, you have to see what's flaring up outside mm-hmm. the 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 flock and and yeah. you know obviously these influence and then as they come and as you deal with scripture in a in an orderly fashion you mm-hmm. have to address these things like you said yeah. it doesn't take a hundred percent of the time but it mm-hmm. you have to say something you have to address it in some way because it impinges on Christianity one hundred and one the yeah. ethics and I mean um, you probably. Uh, heard this on the news as far as uh, Lurie's in Chicago, for example. Yep. They have yep. a, a child uh, trans yep. program. It's horrific. It's demonic. Encouraging yeah. um, children that can't even give consent, whose maturity hasn't even formed, uh, to absolutely obliterate their given biological yep. natures. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the 80s, when you know certain church leaders of a certain stripe maybe were warning against a slippery slope, mm-hmm. people were mocking them. Yep. But this slope that we're on is basically ninety degrees, you know, slicked with uh, WD forty, yeah, right, right. <laughs> and and uh, yeah. it's over an abyss. And it so um, you can't put the brakes on it. You can't put the brakes on it. And at the end of the day, you see this in Romans one you know, being given over. And uh, it is judgment. It's the Lord's judgment. We need to recognize that as well. Um, But it's also, you know, it's also a result of, and Peter Jones, Dr. Peter Jones, he's out at Westminster West, or he was, I think he tells adjunct stuff out there, but he, he's talked about this. He he wrote um, an article called um, Androgyny, the Pagan Sexual Ideal. And essentially this, this flows out of our worship. And so you see a lot of people who are worshiping and serving self-actualization, their inner voice of what, you know, they think and feel. So if for a few days or weeks or, can, you know, the, a, a boy says, I'm a, I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body, these kinds of things, or vice versa, our culture is all ready to endorse this and bless this. And it's, it's so sad because there is, um, as um, she's not a Christian, but she wrote a great book on this, Abigail Schreier said, it's irreversible damage, particularly to... Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's both boys and girls this is being done to. But there's going to be fallout. There already is. Dr. Paul McHugh talked about this. and uh, He was at Johns Hopkins University. He's in his 90s now. But he, he talked about this. He was uh, the chief psychiatrist there. And he said there's going to be like future lawsuits um, that we don't even – like lots of lawsuits mm. of, of kids suing their parents. Why did you do this? Now I can't have kids. 
it's going to get ugly. It's going to get very ugly. Um, but uh, it, the question is, where is the church? You know, where is the church on this? Why isn't the church calling our neighbors to repent and, and move away from this insanity? And I do think that I would say two things. One, I think that because of the nature of the media, uh, probably the, the numbers are inflated to think that more of our neighbors in the United States think this is good, healthy, normal, fine, than, than is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a, I don't have any like evidence for that. That's just my observation. Even, even in conversations with, you know, pastorally care, I don't usually see someone who's like, yeah, we should do that. Let's, you know, transition the kids. It's hard to find those people. Um, it's not in um, the academy. It's not in the media. But outside of secular uh, institutions, deeply, you know, godless institutions, uh, where the elites run, it is it is more difficult. I think your average Joe on the street to find that um, to find that kind of person. And what I think really Christians have got to do is to realize we're not trying to. Um, we we have to be bold to to love our neighbors well to speak the truth, but to realize as well, we can't be surprised by people being given over. It's a it's a biblical category, and I would say that a lot of American Christians have found themselves lulled into thinking they can make compromises with the world as if there's going to be no cost in the long run um, because they think that, well, it's not as bad as it could be, this kind of a thing. But to put this in perspective even more, I would say this, that many Christians have not been equipped to realize, one, what the gospel is and what it demands, what it requires. Um, The idea that the Lord Jesus would say, as he does in Matthew's gospel, that I've not come to bring peace but a sword and then he goes through and talks about all these divisions between family well we see that very clearly happening around us we see this division and christ is the source of that ultimately because being the creator uh being the one by whom for whom in whom all things were made we know that this is ultimately an assault on the creator so it's spitting on him and saying um, i know your word says in psalm 100 verse 3 um, that it is god who made us and not we ourselves I know it says that, but I want to actually create myself in the image that I would prefer, not the not the image of God. I want another uh, image, namely what I feel, what I think, what I sense. And so, you know, there's a there's a clever little phrase um, I, I quote probably too much, but it's always so funny where someone says, you know, uh, God created man in His own image, and after Genesis three, man uh, has ever since returned the favor, mm-hmm. tried to return the favor. And I think that's a clever phrase, but it does help us realize. Man is trying to, mankind, sinful mankind, is trying to worship and serve itself uh, above above all. And so insofar as you won't affirm me, I'm going to dig my heels in and go down this path, even if it causes detriment to me. But I think Christians who are thinking biblically have to realize that the connection to carving up your body or harming your physical body has roots in the scriptures to false worship, demonology, you see this in uh, Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? Or Baal, however you say that, prophets of Baal. They're cutting themselves. They're mm-hmm. covering themselves up to their God. And then you you press forward after, that's 1 Kings 18, you press forward to the New Testament and you see when the Lord Jesus comes across the demoniac mm-hmm. and uh, no one, no chains can hold him, right? He could just rip apart these chains. he got this almost superhuman strength. But he's, he's cutting himself mm-hmm. and there's all these scars all over his body from him cutting himself. I think a lot of Christians aren't prepared to realize the demonic implications for this. And they try to dismiss it of, oh, they're just confused. They're mentally unstable. They're, but there, there very much is a 
demonic element, a spiritual element that we cannot ignore in terms of this is destructive. And the fact that they're targeting kids now is so evil. And it needs to be, an, an end needs to be put to this. Just like Proverbs 24 says, who, who rescue those being led to the slaughter. There is, uh, there are so many people. It's not, I know people are saying, hopefully it's just a fad. Dr. Paul McHugh said that. Um, I hope it's just a fad. Boy, I do too. But you look at the trajectory we're seeing and you're not seeing this de-escalate. You're seeing, if anything, it get amplified over and over again. All these uh, government school teachers coming out now and, and saying uh, this and that, the other thing. And I look at the trajectory of our nation, and the way I think about this is too many Christians in our nation are forgetting that we are to live as exiles. We are to be as elect exiles, chosen by the Lord, as First Peter says. But we also have to realize that if we're just in it for, I want to get things back to the way they were, things are never, air quotes, going back to the way they were. Um, we're far past that point. And, uh, and frankly, I think that the message is, let's just pray for revival. Let's just preach the gospel consistently and faithfully, calling our neighbors to repent, because at the end of the day, we have no hope outside of Christ. And if you think it's going to come through more legislation or electing the right people, I'm not saying those things don't have value um, in, the, in the short run, and we shouldn't take those seriously. But I am saying that if we think if we're going to stop at that solution, which I think a lot of evangelicals do, they never preach the gospel. They never engage in spiritual, meaningful conversations. That's 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 not going to be the winning strategy where we see a nation of our neighbors turn to the living God and repent of their sins and trust in Christ. It's got to come with the gospel. It's got to come through that power of God to salvation. Pastor, as we wind down this discussion, which has been very fruitful, I think beneficial to our audience, I would like to ask, what direction do you see Christ the King Reformed Baptist Church fitting into the broader reformed uh, movement. And I say this with a certain emotion because of my history. And, um, you know, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago back, um, when I decided to leave the uh, Baptist church that I was a part of, um, there were no Spanish-speaking Mm. Reformed Baptist or even Reformed Friendly Churches. Mm. And our only alternative was to travel, you know, basically 100 miles. Mm -hmm. That was not sustainable for a group. And um, it has always been a desire to see, you know, other um, languages and other, you know, uh, ethnicities and people groups uh, flourish as far as church planting in the States. And um, I've seen a few others, you know, uh, open up here and there, but still it's it's very sparse. Mm -hmm. And then this spontaneously in God's, you know, providence um, connected a a people, a flock here connected with you. Mm -hmm. You connected with them. Yeah. There's been a a marriage um, that only God could bring about. Amen. And. There has been growth, but also a, you know, as the audience can tell, a very, your, your leadership is biblically grounded and uh, aware of perhaps an ethos that mm-hmm. I, I could tell you uh, there is an ethos here that is differently than a run-of-the-mill Reformed Baptist church. Mm-hmm. It's just different, um, even though, you know, Things may be outwardly the same. The yeah. worship is is very uh, 
simple but regulated by scripture mm-hmm. and i'm sure there will be uh further uh, refinements and yeah. maybe changes in the future but where do you see christ the king reformed baptist church fitting into the broader reformed baptist movement well we we praise god for you know many of the people at our church i think are new to the confessionally reformed baptist uh tradition um but i think that they also are zealous in a good way for growing and understanding what that means and how to live that out in light of what they would say Scripture does consistently teach and preach on that and call us to. So I think it is, there's a number of folks who are newer to the Confession of Reformed Baptist tradition. And I think that there is uh, room to continue to learn from those who've gone before um, to study our uh, 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith to learn from other uh, godly uh, men and read some other resources who who have put this into practice um, and have lived in light of this. But I think in the larger Reformed uh, Baptist world, I think that there's a few things I would say. One, um, we do want to see not only our neighbors come to saving faith in Christ and bear witness for them. We, we do want to do that and take that personal evangelism seriously, equipping our people to do that. But we also want to see the Lord work amongst the nations. So we have a, a, a brother here, you know him, and he um, uh, has connections down in Mexico and wants to see the Lord do some great things down there and to see uh, Reformed Baptist churches planted there. And and we, we're praying actively that the Lord would lead us to connect with different um, missions groups, different um, like-minded local churches around the nations who share these biblical convictions and want to see disciples of Christ made according to the whole counsel of God's word. And want to plod in that faithful work and want to plant those seeds and watch the Lord do his work through his word. And so I think that in the larger uh, Reformed Baptist world, we do have some connections with Founders Ministries. Um, I went down to that conference in January. It was great to meet some of those brothers down there. A number of them are SBC, but not all of them are. Um, Many are not, in fact. But um, then the G3 Network, that's a good um, group of Reformed Baptist brethren. We're like, I think, one of two or three churches uh, on the G3 website. Um, G3 Ministries, great, great ministry that I've also been to one of their conferences and they have uh, been producing some great stuff. So we praise God for some of these kind of, you might say, allies from afar in local church ministry. But we also want to see in the Chicagoland area uh, more uh, churches planted. We're talking actively about uh, planting a church, maybe even with the with a few other like-minded uh, brethren uh nearby who maybe attend this church some do not and we're prayerfully saying okay lord what would you have us do when it comes to that the strategy might look different but i think in the in the larger reformed baptist tradition rather than kind of be this isolated we'll just kind of hunker down here we want to see networks established we want to see by god's grace partnerships that are strengthened and we want to see churches planted we want to see godly men called to herald and preach and teach the word of god and make disciples with a team of elders there and we want to see this happen. We believe that you know the Lord's not done with the Chicagoland area. Despite what many are doing, we see companies leaving. We see people, neighbors fleeing, getting out of the state. But we believe that you know God is good and faithful, and uh, His word will not return void. So we keep faithfully preaching and teaching the word. As people come here, one of the things we keep uh, keep praying about and planning for as elders is how do we disciple them? How do we get them connected? How do we help not just get to know them, but help them get to know us and help them live faithfully in light of our confessions of faith. Um, we also subscribe to the uh, 
1833, um, as well in New Hampshire Baptist, which is just, you know, a scaled-back version, but a still faithful Reformed Baptist confession. So I think it's learning to live in light of that, learning to recognize that um, we do have some people, too, who are coming here who are... Um, uh, recently, I was talking about one brother who's uh, Pado Baptist, right? And so we find that as well, where they're looking for a faithful church where the word is preached. So we're trying to wrestle through how do we actually um, welcome someone, but also recognize, hey, we're unapologetically going to preach from this persuasion um, and, and help shepherd them. Because in this case, you know, it's hard to find a faithful church for him from where he's coming from and his family. And so we want to actually shepherd him well. And care for him well. So I think what we're trying to do is see, all right, Lord, let's see how other faithful churches have handled these questions that didn't just come up yesterday. They they, they did for us maybe, but they didn't come up yesterday for the rest of the larger Reformed Baptist world. But what we do praise God for is there is a, a host of excellent resources out there in terms of how to live faithfully in light of confessions of faith and to be a confessionally robust church that actually takes seriously the whole counsel of God's word and wants to exalt Christ and wants to make a disciple of him and for him. And so that's a neat thing is we are in a spot where we're revisiting um, what should our partnerships be to reach the nations? Um, what does it look like then to maybe see the Lord work out of our church in the Chicagoland area and beyond? Um, so we, uh, by God's grace, are able to uh, see this happen. Um, and uh, we're seeing more people come, which is neat. But we're also considering, okay, Lord, in light of in light of what you've done, this is your work. Like you said earlier, only God could have providentially brought together um, myself and a few other friends who were looking to uh, leave that larger mega church, and uh, only he could have then orchestrated. So we come here where there's a building, and then there's this kind of unique strategic spot being um, so close to the north side of the city of Chicago and so close to the southern suburbs here. Uh, we're, we're in a little bit of a strategic spot where we're kind of unique, and there aren't many churches that are confessionally Reformed Baptist. So a few people have found us just because they're like, we didn't know there was a confessionally Reformed Baptist church. We wanted to find one. And um, so that leads us then to consider as elders, okay, how do we shepherd folks like this so that we're growing together, so we're learning to actually, by God's grace, rely on his word, but also cultivate a, a community where we are not just going to say, okay, look at all of our numbers, but we're actually going to be equipping people, sending people out, seeing them go, and seeing them be faithful where the Lord has established and planted them. So I would say what we're doing is we are, uh, at this phase, prayerfully exploring Lord, what should our strategy be in terms of who to partner with long-term, in terms of how to plant churches in this area? Because we're not interested in being like, we just want to get bigger and bigger and bigger. We want to be like, I was just talking to a brother today. We want to plant a church. We want to find an area where there's a need, where there's not a church that is faithfully Reformed Baptist, preaching and teaching the Word of God, and establish that church there. Even if that means it's going to come at a cost of sending out half of our members here, we want to have that vision where we're saying, you know what, you reach more people with the gospel if you plant local churches. And yeah, it's great to you know to see more people coming, but we don't want to have this we're going to hunker down, we're just going to hunker down mentality that seems to then grow some unhealthy habits in the life of the church. We want to see people sent out, equipped and sent out, and uh, ready to do that gospel work and realize that we want people to make the most of every opportunity. We don't want them to simply say, well, at least we're here, I found my church, I'm settled, and everything is good. Now it's like, what can you do next for the Lord? How can we seek more to honor Him and to uh, bear witness for His kingdom and to be faithful to that? So... We, we are just praising God. It's a season of peace right now in the sense that, you know, we're not, um, we're not dealing with, obviously there's always pastoral care challenges. There's always those things. But we're not dealing with major divisions when it comes to church splits. We're dealing with, by God's grace, people who are wanting to grow, who are hungry for the word, people who are eager to be teachable. And that's just a blessing. That's a refreshing season, a refreshing time. And in some ways, too, even with some challenges related to our building not being as 
handicap accessible. That's one of the challenges we're praying for. And so if you think of us, pray for that, that the Lord would lead us to figure out a solution for that. What we're trying to prayerfully investigate now is, okay, Lord, how can we actually be more accommodating and hospitable to folks who might choose to come here? But we also recognize that's a blessing. It's a blessing to be able to not have to deal with some division theologically or some false teacher that's come infiltrating the church, but rather, well, we, we see more people coming by God's grace, and we probably need to actually be more handicap accessible for people who are wheelchair and you know wheelchair bound, these kinds of things, and, and have bad knees. And so that's just one of those logistical things where you're like, okay, Lord, this is exciting to think about. And so that's a prayer need, but it's also one thing where we're like, we see that as being something that we actually should pray about more and actually work towards. But we think that, honestly, in the larger Reformed Baptist world, we want to get to know those brethren more. We want to network with them more. So I'm going, Lord willing, again in January to the uh, Founders Conference. I'll also be uh, connecting with some G3 brethren, hopefully. And we'd love to actually see a, a um, and nothing's in the work for this now, so... I don't want to, you know, put a false claim out there, but we'd love to see G3 uh, partner with them and do a regional conference in the area around here, whether it's Wisconsin, whether it's in Illinois somewhere, Indiana. I don't know. Partner with a few like-minded local churches and to see um, a number of of like-minded brothers come together and encourage one another with the word and to network and to build relationships that will be long-lasting and sustainable over over many years of ministry. Uh, because we do think that's what the Lord is doing in the last few years. He's sifting the church. We're seeing this happen all the time, whether it's on gender, sexuality, on ethnicity, um, on a number of other fronts. With COVID, everything happened there. We're seeing the sifting of the church of Christ, where you see a number of people who want to embrace this kind of comfortable Christianity. But I'm sad to say, I think that's mostly Christless, uh, where they actually are blaspheming God and saying, love your neighbor, do this or that, uh, twisting what love means. And frankly, as Christians, we dare not do that. And so I praise God for the fact that he's led a number of people away from kind of this convenient, comfortable, megachurch Christianity, and he's moving them towards a robust, I want to know what it is to follow the Lord all the way even unto death. I want to know what it is to embrace a costly Christianity. I want to know what it is to actually study God's word and not be fearful of these passages that maybe once terrified me. I want to know how to handle God's word, to interpret it. Uh, so that I can actually confidently come and encounter the Lord on the pages of Scripture because that's where He's going to speak to us. And so we're dealing with a lot of challenges. Just like any context in the Chicagoland area, you've got a lot of people who are in churches that profess faith in Christ, but they uh, are not at a sound church. Uh, you have a number of people who are in kind of this you know, squishy middle phase. You've got a number of other people coming out of different backgrounds, prosperity gospel, but then you've also got a lot of people who are just I claim to be nuns, this new category of people who are who are not Christians and know they're not and are not claiming to be. And so how do you reach people who claim to maybe in some cases grew up in a church, but now they're like, I've got no faith. Um, equipping people to know how to engage them and to bring them the gospel. Equipping our people to say, hey, here in your work environment and here in these different environments in your neighborhood and wherever else the Lord has you, how do you actually reach people with the gospel of Christ? How do you be a faithful ambassador of Christ? Uh, those are things that we're trying to tackle and prayerfully do that and look to the Word to do that and uh, realizing that this is beyond us, but as the uh, Apostle Paul uh, said in Ephesians 3, right, he said, we look to the Lord who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine and according to the power of work within us. Uh, we pray that he would glorify himself and also do this work through our church 
to his glory. That's what we're praying for. We're praying that he would do that, and we're excited to see what he might do as we continue to gather and preach and teach and get equipped and then send people out um, and uh, continue to network and partner with people and see where the the nations might uh, have an opportunity for us to come in God's providence to network us with like-minded brethren around the world even and to see that gospel go forth and those like-minded gospel-preaching churches to be established um, without shame and to stand strong no matter the cost in this day. So it's exciting. It's honestly exciting, brother. We just think about our our church, and every time I gather with the other elders and other leaders in the church, you just need to be like to consider what the Lord's doing and to praise Him for what He's done. We just we just say praise God for what He's done. We don't we don't have any other explanation other than God is gracious, His word is good and powerful, and uh, we just keep gathering and and faithfully being patient. There's no like trick to it, right? It's just the Lord is gracious, the Lord is faithful, and He ultimately will have the last word. And we want to be as closely aligned with Him as we can. And so we tell people often. There's people coming from many miles away, but we say with Paul Washer, who rightly said, don't go to the church that's just closest to you. Go to the church that's closest to the gospel. Go to the church that's closest to Christ. Um, and we know that sometimes that comes from a far away, but you don't want to go to a church that's kind of got this half-hearted, squishy Christianity and isn't going to equip you, isn't going to pastor you, isn't going to care for you, but also isn't going to disciple you or challenge you to go out and, and make a disciple of Christ and know the state of your, your marriage, your relationships, know how things are going at a deeper level. We don't think that that is something that anyone... Uh, who's a faithful Christian should want. And so we're like, look, if you're looking for a faithful gospel preaching church in the Chicagoland area, we welcome you here to hear the word uh, word of God preached. We we praise God for that. We're not trying to sheep steal. If you go to a faithful gospel preaching church uh, where the word is fully taught, stay there, get plugged in, serve, join if you haven't already, these kinds of things, and, and pray all that and bless your church. But um, yeah, if you're looking for a local church, we just say, Come and join us and uh, see what the Lord is doing. This is all to his glory, and we just continue to press forward as much as we can um, in his grace. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. A lot to think about. Uh, Before I let you go, I know uh, you have to leave soon, but let me uh, try to ask you some quick hits type questions. I'll be Um, quick in my response, hopefully. (laughs) um, Can you name a resource, one or two, uh, preaching, Mm -hmm. textbook, homiletics textbook? What's your... Um, favorite one? Oh man, you know my my friend. I got a friend Lucas O'Neill who wrote a great book called Preaching to Be Heard. I can't commend that enough. I'm hopefully going to do a review and put it out with um, a publication at some point soon. It's just fantastic. I've returned to that again and again. It's a newer one, and I think Lucas would be like, "Are you kidding me?" There's so many other better ones. Um, Brian Chapel's Christ Center Preaching is 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 excellent. There's a lot of good uh, principles, a lot of things I've learned from there that I find very helpful, and. Um, you know, when I think about um, preaching, uh, I think a book, a booklet, actually, that I return to again and again is J.C. Ryle's Simplicity in Preaching. The way that he encourages preachers to choose the more simple, clear word over the complex word is, um, you don't hear that much today, but it has helped me enormously. Um, I kind of tend towards, I'm going to use the most complex theological word and just define it and rely on that, but... The refreshing nature of being able to have the freedom to say, you know what, I don't want to, as Charles Spurgeon once said, we're not feeding giraffes, you know, like it's way up here. We're feeding sheep. And I think that's accurate. I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it. Um, and Spurgeon's lectures my students, I mean, that's just fantastic stuff. There's some great sections in there on preaching that I found very, very helpful and edifying. And the last thing I'll say is I've been reading this lately, and I've just been so blessed by it. But Albert Martin, um, he uh, went to be with the Lord... I don't even know, in the last few years, I think, but he has this three-volume work on uh, the pastor, and um, I'm in his second volume right now, and it's on preaching, 
and uh, and homiletics, and it, he just it is powerful. It is it is a wonderful read. Um, he is very faithful expositor. Was very faithful expositor. He's now with the Lord and the Church Triumphant. But I would say his stuff has been super super helpful on preaching in uh, in recent uh, recent weeks as I've been peeling back those pages. Awesome. Yeah. Favorite. Uh, systematic theology book. So I've been loving lately. I have not read all of it, so I can't say it's my favorite yet. But I've been reading, jo- uh, loving Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley's um, systematic theologies. I'm, I'm, I'm probably I don't know, maybe a halfway through his first volume, their first volume, I should say. That's been fantastic. Um, but I, I am partial to when I think about like Burkhoff and Bavink. I, I think their stuff is so devotional. Um, I also think that Calvin's Institutes. Um, I've read that now probably three times, I think, and I just Calvin's Institutes are so, in my mind, again devotional. They're by a pastor, like a pastor's heart. I think that if you read through three quarters, maybe even five, six of the Institutes are are chock full of um, uh, just d- devotional, but also rich theological writings that um, that never seem to stop blessing uh, me, even though. You know, as many, I think James White and others have pointed out, like Calvin might have had me drown because I'm a Reformed Baptist, but I, <laughs> I love his stuff. I love his stuff, and those those are just a few. I think Bavink, um, Burkov, Calvin, and then more, more recently Beaky and uh, Smalley have been have been a real blessing. Greg Nichols actually wrote some great stuff too that I read a few years ago on his systematic theology. Greg Nichols stuff is um is fantastic. He's written a few, I think, what, what three or four volumes on systematic theology. That's from a Reformed Baptist perspective. So I found that very helpful a few years ago when I was when I was teaching some Sunday school classes to others. So that was great. And last question. There's only one right answer. What's your favorite podcast? <laughs> of course, it is Urban Puritano. <laughs> you know what? You're a very intelligent pastor. <laughs> I appreciate your time. I appreciate your work. And I pray the Lord bless you, your family, your ministry, our church, and by God's mercy, our community, our city, and our state, our country, our world. Um, Only God is in control. Christ is the King. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you to my audience for joining me. I hope you are edified and encouraged, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers.